You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers. This is an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer, and I want to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be talking to the father of a pediatric cancer survivor who is also a a registered nurse and a school nurse about his unique perspective as a caregiver and also a healthcare professional. And it's a reminder to me that all of us, truly all of us at some time in our life are patients. So we are providers and but we're also patients too. And sometimes it's for one of our children, sometimes for ourselves or our parents, maybe cardiac, maybe pulmonary, and maybe cancer as well. So I think this is a topic of interest to all of us. I know it is for me as a husband of a cancer survivor. We are going to be joined today by David Tate. David is a registered nurse in the Rio Bravo Greeley School System in Bakersville, California. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. This is an absolute joy to be here. I'm very excited to speak with you today on um, topics that are obviously very near and dear to my heart. So with that in mind, if you would tell us your story and your family's story. Oh, absolutely. I'd be happy to. So I guess the best way to tell this story is from the beginning. So Father's Day 2009 was the day that we found out that our youngest son, Lucas, was diagnosed with leukemia. At that time, uh, Ken, he was only seven months old. So we live in a somewhat rural community, about two hours from Los Angeles, about two hours from any type of uh, pediatric, you know, advanced care, if you will, uh, specialty services and whatnot. So essentially, when we found out that a fever that had been lasting about three days and pretty much every provider we had seen at that point. So the first day we had gone to our pediatrician and they thought it was possibly a viral infection. And the only symptom Lucas had at that time was just a fever, Ken. And then the second day we took him into the emergency room because it was Saturday. And at that time, his fever had gone up a little bit. And again, nobody's thinking cancer at this point. Everybody's thinking it's a viral infection because that's what he's presenting with at the time. And it wasn't until Sunday, that third day, where his fever was a little bit higher. And I remember getting a phone call from my wife at work saying he's got spots on his body, his arms and legs. And of course, I'm not a registered nurse at this point. I'm working at a local retail establishment. And I found out that obviously isn't normal. So we're like, okay, let's take him back in to see somebody. We'd been at the ER hours and hours the day before. And so that third day, we ended up taking him into our local kind of like PD center, like an urgent care for pediatric patients. And that was the first time any blood work was ordered. And we found out quickly that the blood work was abnormal. And again, as a parent, we were absolutely like, okay, what do we do next? And they said, we're going to repeat the blood work. And at that point, there were no alarm bells going off or anything. But we went ahead and we repeated the blood work. And I'll never forget it, Ken, we were leaving the lab. And the supervisor for the lab was literally running after us in the parking lot. And at that moment, I knew something was wrong. And he said, you need to go back to the doctor's office and you need to go now. So we immediately hightailed it over to the PD center. We arrived over there. Of course, it's Father's Day. It's after hours. The doors are locked. And we're going, banging on the doors going, what do we do? Who's in there? And they were waiting for us. They knew we were coming back from the lab. And so they opened the door. We hadn't even made it back to the room. 
and the pediatrician told us the pathology looks like leukemia. And at that point, I didn't know what leukemia was. Again, I wasn't a registered nurse at the time. I had no medical background. I didn't know anybody that had leukemia. And as soon as we heard the word cancer, of course, my wife collapsed and we were just in triage mode. What do you do? Where do we go? And of course, the pediatrician is saying, you need to go to a children's hospital. I didn't even know, Ken, where the children's hospital was for us in our community. But he hadn't needed those kinds of services before. So we immediately called my pediatrician. He was there in less than five minutes. And at that point, we were just a baton. The ambulance was on the way to pick us up, to take us to our local hospital, get him stabilized. And then we were taken down by ambulance to UCLA. We arrived at one o'clock in the morning and didn't go home for about nine months. David, I want to ask you sort of the two parts of the experience. You know, in a sense, that moment when you first heard the word leukemia, what was the experience in two ways? One is, you know, sort of, again, the intellectual or thinking part of it. And the other one, what was your visceral feeling? Right. So many people vividly remember, and it sounds like you do, those moments. I think for me personally, I had that dad hat on, right? And so I was like, okay, what do we do? What's our next steps? Where do we need to go? And so I think for me, that was kind of a coping mechanism for me was just kind of like, what's within my control? What can we do? Where do we need to go? And again, that was kind of like, you know, getting a hold of our pediatrician, getting him to that children's hospital that we'd heard we needed to go to. And of course, triaging and helping my wife. Like I said, we, I literally had to get her a chair and help her up off the ground. So I'll never forget that. She was just an absolute mess. And I know cancer. I'm no stranger to cancer in my family. And I'm talking like extended family. But again, leukemia was new for us. I didn't know exactly what that meant at the time. So visceral, absolutely fear. I mean, I had no idea what we were getting into, what we were, you know, what was in store for us. And so we were very, very afraid. And seven months old, Ken, we didn't know, you know, I found this out later on, a few years later, after he was done with treatment, we went back to the pediatrician for routine care. And our pediatrician was so happy to reintroduce Lucas to his wife, who was the office manager over there at the practice. And I remember him telling her, you know, do you remember Lucas? Do you remember that little boy, seven months old? We sent him down to UCLA and he turned over to me and he goes, David, I never told you this, but I didn't know if you were going to bring him home. And those are the kinds of things that, you know, they're scary and it makes it just very, very real. Yeah, it certainly does. It really does. Nine months of treatment, is, you know, is a long time. You know, again, looking back now, you know, it's been 12 years. Right. You know, as you think about that whole experience, the hospitalizations, the chemotherapy, what are sort of the observations that are the most relevant to you that you want to share with everyone about uh, your son, about your family, about health care, about cancer care, the doctors and nurses? I'd just be interested in sort of how you've framed this journey since then. It's funny you ask that. I've been asked that question a number of times over the years in different ways. And I find that this experience has been the most challenging experience for our entire family, without a doubt. I mean, that goes without saying, right? But I also have found that it has been one of the most rewarding experiences. And I know that might sound odd to people, but I, over the years now, have been able to give back to my community. I've gone back to school to become a registered nurse because of my experience with Lucas and our family. I was volunteering at a camp for children with cancer here in Southern California because it was a camp that we found very important to our family. And I know, again, that may sound kind of odd, like, why are they going to camp? But Ken, that was the first time that we met another family outside of the clinical setting 
where it was a no worries situation where you weren't worried about accessing ports and pushing meds and neutropenia and all that kind of stuff. That was our first glimpse of normalcy that we had even seen since we heard that word, your son has leukemia. That was a real powerful experience for us. So I would encourage a lot of people to kind of help families navigate that. Most families that go through this, and I'm sure you're familiar with this as well, Ken, but you know, th this is their first time if it's a childhood cancer situation, for instance, that they're going through cancer, you know, with a child, of course. So they may not be aware of what resources are out there. And camp for us was one of those things that kind of saved us. I mean, I love my family and I know that they were supportive throughout our journey, but they didn't really get it. Do you know what I mean? They hadn't walked in our shoes, you know, trying to take care of a child that is sick with cancer. So I that experience was so powerful, just going there and attending a long weekend with other families that had been through this journey in some form or another, whether it was leukemia or if it was a brain tumor or sarcoma or whatever the case may be. It was so powerful for me that I went to the camp director and I said, can I volunteer here? I'm connecting to camp and I feel like I need to get back here. This weekend has been life changing for us. And sure enough, it was life changing. I ran into when I volunteered that next summer, I ran into a retired hemonc nurse from UCLA where Lucas was treated. And I was walking campers up to the med shed so they can get meds because this is a full service camp where they do medications. So the kids that are in treatment can it's medically supervised. So there's an oncologist there and a hemonc nurse. And this hemonc nurse the entire week was like, David, you need to be a nurse. And I was like, no way, I can't take on more school. I'm almost done with my degree, et cetera. And it was every day for the entire week, Ken. And I am so grateful she did that because the drive home, I reflected on, I'm circling back to your original question. I was reflecting on that five-hour drive home on all of the amazing healthcare workers that were at the bedside that coached us through the difficult nights that held our hand and told us that they were there for us. And I said, I want to be that person. So I have to say, I'm hoping our listeners that they're really hearing that because I want to echo that as well. And the heroes, quiet and sometimes unspoken, which is a very general kind of word, but the heroes sometimes don't get applauded as much are the nurses, I found, and the aides, and certainly, of course, the doctors. But it really is a team that helps patients and families get through that experience. I want to ask you, you know, it's been now, again, 12 years. So tell us about Lucas. Oh, wow. I'm so happy to say that he is 12 going on 13, and he is living life to the fullest. Obviously, we still go and do the routine annual care at UCLA, and we have a very, very wonderful support team over there. And he is part of that long-term follow-up clinic. Because as you know, Ken, I mean, we're watching for relapse still. We're still watching for, you know, any type of academic delays in school due to long-term chemotherapy side effects, etc., but I'm happy to say that he's very aware of, of what, even though he was only seven months old, he's very aware of his history, if you will. But it doesn't define him. So he embraces it. And I know he's an advocate at my side. Anytime that we're talking with families in the community that have children that are going through cancer treatment, et cetera. But he's doing great. He's doing great in school. He loves superheroes and going to Comic-Con conventions and being silly and terrorizing his older brother, Bradley, the stuff normal kids should be doing, he's doing. And we're so ever grateful that he's doing so well and thriving. So I'm sitting here with a really big smile, and I'm betting a lot of people are doing the exact same thing as I know you are as well. And 
many years later, because I'm really quite interested, what's your degree of worry now? I sometimes ask my adult patients who are being treated for cancer or were treated, you know, how much do you think about cancer? And this is for more long-term visits. So let me ask you the same thing. How much do you think about that experience? And where is your degree of, of worry at this point many years later? I really appreciate you asking that, Ken, because I feel like that's kind of the, oh man, that's that visceral thing you're talking about, right? It's that thing where for us, Lucas presented with a fever and nothing else. It wasn't until that third day that he showed that petechial rash. So to this day, anytime Lucas gets a fever and no other symptoms, and he doesn't have a sore throat and he doesn't have a cough and he doesn't have anything else, it's like I'm reliving that day. So there are moments where it's very, you know, in the front of my mind, and it's very real, and I am very worried. And I will tell you that I've made numerous calls to my UCLA team for Lucas over the years, and the worry has waned, obviously. In the beginning, when we were doing the twice a week visits and the three times a week, and obviously, as you know, that slowly gets less and less as time goes on. So the worry does wane, right? It's not as front of mind, and you kind of embrace, and our team has been great. David, stop worrying about it. You need to just go out there and live life. As I was saying earlier, you need to go and, you know, find activities and try not to worry about it. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that we've become so involved in the childhood cancer community and advocacy and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and giving back because I feel like that's our cathartic way of coping, right? And I had that discussion with one of our lead oncologists at UCLA, Dr. Ted Moore, and I had asked him about counseling, for instance. And this was actually when I was volunteering another time at camp, but as a registered nurse. And he said, you know, David, it's funny you asked that. He said, because you were one of the ones we were least worried about. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, you guys have become so active and have found ways to give back to your community. You guys have got that together. And it's something that I hadn't really thought about. We just kind of instinctually did it. You know, that's how I was raised to try to give back to my community. So we just kind of did it. But I think when you're talking about how present that fear is on a day-to-day basis, I think we're finally there where it's not occupying our mind all the time. But at the flip of a switch, when he's got that fever that's unexplained, obviously the floodgates open and it comes back. And we worry to this day. And it's been 12 years. I'm going to ask you more about your work and your career work as a nurse and a school nurse in particular. And obviously how it's been shaped, you've talked a little bit how you've been shaped, but tell us about your work with children who are, have been diagnosed with cancer and what are some of the contributions that you're most proud of or most excited about blending your experience as a parent with your experience as a, as a nurse? Oh, absolutely. I am so happy and proud to be a school nurse, Ken. I feel like it's one of those areas of nursing that sometimes gets overlooked, if you will. We don't work in a clinical setting, right? We're not over there in the hospital. But I do have an acute care pediatric background. So when I got my nursing degree, I went to work for our local pediatric unit here in Bakersfield. And I found school nursing kind of by accident. You know, my wife's an educator. She teaches sixth grade language arts. And she had told me about a job fair. So I was like, oh, I'll go check it out. And was kind of going around talking to other school districts and was offered a job pretty much on the spot. I mean, school nurses are needed. This is even before COVID, right? If we have that kind of lens on right now, we have more and more students in our public schools that are attending school 
with chronic diseases. And I'm not talking just cancer, right? We're talking anything from asthma to cystic fibrosis, et cetera. So the school nurse role, I think, has expanded, obviously, during COVID, but prior to that, even more so because of all of the students that are attending school with chronic conditions. So I found the position kind of by accident, wasn't really sure what I was getting myself into. That was about five years ago or so. And I'm so happy that I was able to make that change because public health speaks to me. I'm able to be in a position in the school where I am, like you said, able to use kind of my background, what I've experienced as a father, and I can relate to my patients' parents when they're struggling with accessing certain healthcare services in the community. And so I really enjoy that. I enjoy kind of the long-term relationships that we get to build with our student patients and obviously with the parents as well, because it's a team effort. And it is just like it is in the hospital setting, right, Ken? Our multidisciplinary team looks a little bit different, obviously. You know, I don't have RT at the bedside or I'm not calling for lab to come down and draw labs, but my multidisciplinary team looks like, you know, myself, the school psychologist, a counselor, our administration, teachers, of course, parents, the student. We really like to involve the student. And I think that's something I'm really proud of that when we're talking healthcare, I really try to work with my students on helping them to become independent, managing their chronic conditions, not relying on others, because that's important. I want to ask you a two-part question. Sure. The first is with parents and families, do you disclose, you know, and talk about your own experience and when? And the second would be, obviously, for children with cancer and their families, you've had a very similar experience in some ways and a different experience in others. But for, right. for families that are struggling with other things, I still would imagine that sort of what you took from your own experience helps you work with them as well. So again, two-part question, do you disclose and when and how? And again, how's your experience helped you in other parts of school nursing? Right. So I personally am a bit of an open book. And I know that's not for everybody. I do disclose to parents and sometimes students as well, especially if they are students that are post-leukemia treatment and we're reintroducing them back into the school setting 100%. I am very comfortable with them knowing that I am a pediatric cancer dad and I've been through that and I'm here to support them. And I feel like that from the parent perspective, I would have appreciated that as well. And I know from all of the numerous families' feedback I've received from both the students and from the parents that they do appreciate me disclosing that. Again, I know that's not for everybody, but I feel like that is one of the ways that we're able to connect. And again, like you had mentioned, I will sometimes disclose that even if it's not a student that has been through cancer treatment. Sometimes it may be a student that has a complex medical condition. Maybe they have a colostomy bag or they've got some other medical condition that is chronic and the parents are worried. And so I will offer that at that time when I can kind of feel out and flesh out that the parents are having a hard time or the students having a hard time just so that I can, you know, make sure that they understand that I relate and I am a dad of a pediatric cancer survivor and I'm not just a school nurse. You know what I mean? Like I have a lot of other hats that I wear and I feel like that is super, super helpful. And by the way, as a husband of a cancer survivor, I do the same thing. And I agree. I think it adds in the right setting. I think it can be profoundly helpful. Oh, 100%. It's not something I go up and down the halls telling everybody, of course. But like you said, in the right setting, 
I make a judgment and say, hey, I think this might be helpful at this moment. And more often than not, it is. And I get that feedback. And it may not be right away. You know, it may be later on that I hear from the parents and say, you remember that day you told me you were a cancer dad and you've been through you know, a similar situation? As you mentioned, you know, no two families' journeys are the same. No two patients' journeys are exactly the same. But a lot of times the struggles are similar enough that you can at least relate in a supportive way and you can help each other through that. So I find it very helpful. Yeah. And by the way, listening to you, I'm sort of picturing how reassuring it would be. And I find as professionals, when we talk to our patients and their families as also as people, it so adds to the connection that we have. And personally, I also think it's part of the healing. Um, I can't prove it, but I think it is. No, I think you're 100% correct. Because I mean, like we talk about in a lot of different things, when you get a cancer diagnosis, there's grieving, right? We don't have to have a patient pass away from a disease for there to be grieving. We grieved our old lives before Lucas was diagnosed. And so I feel like a lot of parents are going through that grieving process, but may not be able to articulate it. And so by making that connection, I think, like you said, I think it's very supportive. It's a way to be supportive. And uh, it's very helpful, and it offers hope in a lot of cases for families. So I'd like to ask you also about your advocacy work. I know you're very active in the LLS, and yeah, share with us, if you would, some of the things that you've enjoyed and really valued. Wow. Advocacy, again, is one of those things that I am so happy I accidentally found with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. There are so many ways to volunteer with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So I'm going to give a, a small shameless plug that if you're listening to this right now, I guarantee you there's a way that you can give back to this wonderful organization. I started with the Light the Night Walks, right, to support Lucas and families in our community to help raise money for research and patient services. And I was cold called by somebody within the advocacy kind of wing of LLS and they were like, hey, can you come to Washington, D.C. with us and talk to some legislators? And, you know, we're trying to do some work on X, Y, Z. And I was like, sure. And it was one of those things that I'm so glad I said yes at that moment, because this has been by far one of the most rewarding ways that I've been able to give back since Lucas's diagnosis. And talking to legislative offices and doing advocacy work and bringing real life patient stories, helping to illustrate there are real patients and real families that are going through situations that are difficult. And our healthcare system isn't perfect. And there's certain things that we can fix and certain things that can help families. But putting a face on that and helping to tell your story in a meaningful way, like I said, it has been just extremely rewarding with the Looking at Informant Society. And I've been able to now I've been volunteering in this capacity with the advocacy group and going to Washington, D.C. And it's funny because, you know, I live in California and I kind of tell people this, that, of course, you learn about the way that the government works and how bills are passed and, and how things become law and, and whatnot. But growing up in California, Washington, D.C. was one of those mythical lands on the other side of the country. So, you know, I had never been to Washington, D.C. prior to the advocacy work I had done with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So it was, it was a little bit daunting at first, but it's super easy. It's one of, the, I mean, it's, it's like you and I are talking right now, right? We're just, you're talking to another person and you're telling your story and how important it is for a certain issue to be addressed because it affects families like ours. 
and patients like Lucas. And it's as simple as that, but it's very powerful and, and very meaningful. And so right now I'm currently the California leader for our advocacy group with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which has also been a lot of fun. So I'm helping to lead new advocates and teach them how to do advocacy. And it's been extremely rewarding, Ken. I absolutely love doing it. David, I want to ask you also as a school nurse, how has COVID-19 changed children cancer survivors transition both in and out of school? That's a really great question, Ken. And one that I'm so glad you asked because these are the challenges in the school system that we're facing right now. I will say that a lot of things health-related in the school system, a lot of it is individualized, right? So when we're talking about, let's say, a health plan, it's an individualized health plan, right? Because it's a health plan for that individual student. So every student's journey has been different. I have had some students that parents are just not comfortable, right? And so those students have not made that transition back to the school setting. And sometimes they're right at the tail of treatment. Sometimes they're, you know a little bit out from treatment, and the parents are just not there yet. And I appreciate that. So we work with those families very closely with teachers and administration to support those students so they can still access their education and any support services that they need and so that they can be successful still. And we stay in constant communication so that we can help them transition whenever they're ready. I have had some, though, that are very excited to make that transition. So as a school nurse, one of my main jobs, besides obviously direct clinical care in a school setting, is care coordination, right? So I'm working with the oncology team at, let's say, UCLA or whatever facility the student is treated at. And I'm that healthcare professional in the school setting, right? I'm the one that can help kind of bridge that gap between the educational world and the healthcare world which is a really exciting place to be because I really love working with students. So I work very closely with the healthcare team, work very closely with administration so that we can provide accommodations for some of the students where the oncology team is supporting the students to go back, helping them with accessing vaccines, maybe if that's what's recommended by the healthcare team. Obviously, any type of increased sanitation and whatnot for the classroom. Communication, we provide in-services for staff, obviously, so that they can provide a safe environment, any of those things. But again, it's very individualized. So we will hold meetings with the healthcare team and the parents and the students as appropriate. And we will help to kind of create plans, a healthcare plan that everybody is comfortable with. And we readdress it and kind of review it frequently, especially for our students that are cancer patients trying to return to school. So I guess the shorter answer is it just depends on the students. But I, I definitely have had some students that it's safe for them to come back. We're making the accommodations that they need and supporting those students so that they can get back in school with their friends. Super. So with that answer in mind, and obviously of such an important, timely topic, I want to take the opportunity to say that this has been a wonderful discussion, talking about your experience as a dad 12 years ago, and now your experience as a school nurse. And it's been incredibly interesting and inspiring also to hear about all of it. And on behalf of myself and LLS, and I think everyone listening, want to wish the very best to you and also to Lucas. And I fully enjoyed and want to thank David Tate, who is a school nurse and a registered nurse in Bakersfield, California. David, thanks again. Ken, it has absolutely been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this informative and really interesting episode for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources. Please visit lls.org slash CE. 
for any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at readingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for families, patients, lls.org slash podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.